All right. Good morning, Faith family. How are we doing this morning? Doing well? Come on, 11 o'clock service is supposed to be fired up, man. Uh, if you can't get fired up behind that song, I don't know what will get you excited. Uh, and it's, a, it's kind of one of the unique things about Christianity is how can we say hallelujah for the cross? Because the cross is um, difficult and the cross is uh, violent and the cross is torturous. And yet the worst day of human history somehow can also be the best day. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is that what Jesus did on the cross by dying and then three days later rising again, uh, defeated death and sin and hell and the grave, uh, and, uh, and, and has invited us to share in that victory. Uh, and that's the beauty uh, of the cross. Uh, my name is Nate Jordan. Uh, if you are a guest today, uh, I'm the student pastor here. I work with our junior high and high school students and their parents. Uh, and uh, I am excited to be able to speak to y'all this morning. Dr. Moody and his family are out of town on vacation, uh, and so last week, if you were here with us online or in person, you know that we've begun a new sermon series on the book of Ruth, uh, having just finished up a sermon series on the book of Revelation, and so the book of Ruth is much shorter, uh, and so you might like that or not, I don't know, uh, And uh, but uh, we're going to start there today, and um, I just wanted to say a quick thank you um, to our faith family. If you're watching with us online on Facebook Live or uh, on our website, thanks for joining with us. Uh, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to, um, to everyone who prayed for our students uh, last week at youth camp. Uh, and has prayed, uh, yeah, uh, has prayed for, uh, there's some teenagers here in this service, if you haven't figured that out. Um, and um, and, you know, we sent an email, I got an email asking you to pray. And uh, I've been to youth camp a lot. Uh, as a youth pastor for the last 12 to 15 years, I've gone as a volunteer and as a pastor. And uh, I've went as a student when I was in junior high and stuff like that. Uh, and I can really confidently say, having unpacked it for a while now, that last week at Falls Creek was the most impactful and God-moving week I have ever experienced at camp. Um, and I believe... Part of that is um, just the, 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 the circumstances that our world has been in for the last, you know, two years, basically now almost. Uh, and uh, I also think it's because the church was praying. Uh, and uh, I've, I've felt that. It was unique. I mean, we're going to talk about this concept today of Christian dedication. And there's a stereotype in the, in the church, in the West anyway, of people that are just constantly rededicating their life to Christ every youth event or every week or whatever. And, um, and honestly, like this was not the case really at our camp. Um, they gave an invitation every night. And like for three days, nobody from our group went forward. Yet, in the cabin, we were leading people to Christ at the dinner tables and just before bedtime. I mean, it's just our leaders were able to lead, I don't know, maybe a dozen kids to Christ just in our cabin. And uh, I, I've never had that occur in that manner, to be honest with you. Uh, and so I just want to say thank you because there's a whole story about us getting a new cabin and having so many kids sign up that we had to hire a second bus to go to camp. And all that, I would love to tell you those stories, but I just want to say thank you if you prayed. Uh, and also, if you are a, a partner of the church and you give, I want to say thank you. Because your sacrificial giving allowed us to do uh, the things we got to do at False Creek. 
uh, and, and which is not, it's not, you know, it takes, it takes resources to do that. And it takes people, resources and volunteers, but also takes, you know, that, that dollar you put in the, in the black box or online, part of that goes to help kids and teenagers hear the gospel. And uh, I just want to say thank you to that. And in the next few weeks, we'll be baptizing, I hope, a bunch of teenagers. So you'll get to see that on, on display as well. But um, anyway, I want to talk to you about dedication and surrender today. Uh, and we'll talk about like a, a, a biblical view of Christian dedication. Uh, we're going to touch briefly and, and use the book of Ruth as our uh, launching point. And then we're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 6, uh, as well as uh, I'm going to read to you some quotes from teenagers at camp, uh, as well as share a little bit of my story about how this all kind of worked out in my life. So let's open to the book of Ruth, uh, if you will. At the front of your Bible, uh, if you're using the YouVersion app uh, at home or here, you can go to the live events uh, tab and we will have our sermon notes are in the live events of the YouVersion app. Uh, or if you have not gotten a listening guide, they're on the back tables here uh, at the back of the room. If you want to grab one of those, uh, we'll use that. Ruth's a very short book uh, and near the front of the Bible right after Judges. In fact, uh, we learned last week, if you were here, it's set in the same time period as the book of Judges. So, um, you know, judges were not necessarily like uh, judges in our nation that judged trials. They did some of that. They were more like, you know, Conan the Barbarian uh, types, warriors. Uh, and so think of Samson. He was a judge, right? Think of Gideon, warriors. Uh, and so, uh, but this happened in that time period in Israel's history. And this is really begins a story of, as a tragedy, uh, a tragedy where uh, there was three women that were widowed. And I know some of you probably in this room and online can relate to that, to having been widowed. Uh, and, um, and, and that's how this story begins. And through that, we're going to see a story of true dedication and true surrender that comes out of that. Uh, and uh, Dr. Moody's going to preach through this uh, a great deal. And uh, one of the things I love about our church staff, you may not know this, but we really work as a team uh, pretty well. And, uh, and so like, uh, I knew I was preaching today. And so I sat down with Chris this week and we were talking about it and, they, and, and, and it's not like he's telling me what I need to preach or anything like that. We were just talking through it. Uh, and he was at camp with us and, um, just saw what God did. And he's like, you know, just for the future and for, uh, a real timely message is why don't we just talk about this idea of dedication, what that looks like. Uh, in the life of a the, the life of a believer, not from the very beginning of hey, this is the first time I've believed in Jesus. To man, I've been a follower of Jesus twenty years, and I kind of need a wake up call a little bit, you know, uh, and, I, and anywhere in between. Um, but uh, there were a family uh, from the city of Bethlehem. You've heard of that? That's where Jesus was born. That's where David was from. It's a minor city on the map. But in the Bible, a very important city. Tons of uh, important things happened uh, in the city of Bethlehem. And um, a man named Elimelech married a woman named Naomi. They had uh, two sons, and they uh, would eventually marry two women. But uh, Bethlehem means the house of bread. Uh, there was a famine in the house of bread, so no bread in the house of bread, as Chris said. And so they had to go to another land to find greener pastures, literally. Uh, and so they went to the, the nation of Moab, the land of Moab, and there the two sons found oh, two wives, one each, uh, Orpah and Ruth. Right? And they lived there about 10 years is what the Bible tells us here. 
And through a process, Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, passed away. And his two sons also passed away. We don't get a lot of details, at least yet, as to how that took place. But what we have here is three widows, a mother-in-law and two daughter-in-laws. And that's a tragedy no matter what culture we're in. But in our culture, that may not be as big of a deal. Naomi could have gotten a job if she didn't have one. She, she probably would have had an education, could have, you know, kind of made a living for herself. The, the young women could have gone out on their own and, and survived. But in this culture at the time, that would have been a major tragedy. It was a patriarchal culture and, um, you know, land ownership and possessions and everything went through the male heir. And there was no male heir of this family. And so you can imagine the, the, the destitute nature of it, the panic that's probably going through their minds, the how are we going to make a living, how are we going to survive, and Ruth uh, is going to, decides to go back to her land, to Bethlehem, uh, and she tries to send the two daughters to go back to, to, her, to their parents. A logical conclusion, I would think, hey, uh, Ruth even says, hey, I'm not having any more children, that, that, that time has passed. And even if I were, were you going to wait till they grow up so you can marry them? Like, the, the, you don't have a lot of options here, girls. And at first, both of them are very dedicated. No, we're going to stay. We're going to stay. We're, gonna, we, we're with you. And then she reasons some more with them. And Orpah, uh, it says, went away uh, weeping. And it says that, that Ruth clung to Naomi. And I think that's a, that's a vivid picture of, uh, of the gospel message, that some people... Right? I don't think we have to stretch too far to see that, that some people, uh, when they really think about it, it's not for them. They're going to go their own way. And that others, they will just cling to Jesus because he's all they got. I think we see that. Jesus called a rich young ruler to come and follow him. And, and he said, well, what do I need to do? And he says, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the Bible says he left sad because he was a man of great wealth. And yet we see a woman who is, is stricken with a disease that she can do nothing to, to heal herself. No doctor in the world has been able to heal her. And all she does is grasp and touch the hem of Jesus's garment, touch his robe and is healed. And so we see a grasping and a leaving away sad. All right? Ruth says, you know what? I'm going to stay. Naomi says, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to talk you out of it one more time. And let's see what she says here. Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. She said, see, I hear pages turning, so I'll wait. Uh, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Evidently, Moab was not a nation that followed the God of Israel. They worshiped many gods, probably nature or fertility, different, different ones. So go back to your gods and to your people. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts from me to you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Ruth said, look, everything I have, I'm staking it in this relationship. I'm leaving behind everything else 
and I'm going to dedicate to you and to your God. That's a fundamental shift here now. If you don't move from many gods and some different faith background to I'm going to worship the one God of Israel now. My life's dedicated to you and to him. Right? That's a dedication. That's a surrender. Ruth literally surrendered everything she had in the world to follow. She left everything behind and uh, went there. Now, in the Old Testament, this idea of dedication, well, actually, let's define this term, dedication. I'm going to define dedication, and then we're going to look to the New Testament in Romans 6 to see a kind of a pattern of dedication. Um, dedication in the, the Holman Bible Encyclopedia says this, says that dedication is setting apart or consecrating persons or things to God or gods. Dedication is not just a Christian thing. You can be dedicated to a lot of things. You can be dedicated to your video games, you know, to your squad uh, or whatever, uh, you know. Uh, you can be dedicated to fitness. You can be dedicated to maybe less productive things. You could be dedicated to another faith, all right? But it's setting apart or consecrating persons or things to God, to persons, to sacred work, or to ends. And usually there's some prayer involved asking God to bless this dedication. Did anybody growing up have like uh, fancy dishes, like your grandmother or your mother had fancy dishes, like for special occasions? Anybody? Like, uh, not, our family is like paper plates. If special occasions, the paper plates come out, so we don't want to wash a bunch of dishes. But my grandmother has the, and my mom still has them, these cabinets full of fancy dishes. And we never eat on them now. But as a child, I always wanted to eat on those fancy dishes. But we'd only eat on them at like Easter, Christmas, or Thanksgiving, right? They were set aside. They were consecrated for a certain thing. They were set apart. Those dishes sat in a cabinet most of the year, but they were pulled out for three or four days a year for special occasions. That's this idea of being consecrated, of being set apart, set aside for a, a unique thing. And in the Old Testament, we see that people are consecrated, places, and things. So think about people like Samuel, the prophet. His mother consecrated him from birth. She prayed to God to have a child and said, if I have a child, God, I will dedicate him to you. And so Samuel was dedicated. He was consecrated to God from the very beginning of his life. Think about the tabernacle, a place, the, the, the mobile place of worship in the wilderness for the people of Israel. It was consecrated. It served no other purpose but for the worship of God. It was consecrated and set apart for that. And then the temple, the same in Jerusalem. It was a consecrated place. And then throughout, throughout times, uh, as God did a mighty work in the life of Israel, that we would read something like they built an altar there to remember by, and they named that place whatever. And usually those names had a meaning, and it was, let's remember what God has done in this place, and let's set a marker here, you know, uh, that, that's, that we can remember it by. We'll gather some stones, build an altar, whatever, right? It was an act of remembrance. It was to consecrate that place. And we don't do that now, right? In the New Testament, places and things aren't as important. The temple, it says in the Gospels, when Jesus died, he breathed his last breath, that the curtain that separated the holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that God had done it. It wasn't, it wasn't man's work. And so that place was no longer the holy of holies, right? Paul will unpack this later, and the author of Hebrews will unpack it to say, like, the holy place is within 
the believers. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within the life of believers. All right? And so in the New Testament, this idea of being consecrated almost always refers to the church. Not this stage and not these lights and not this music uh, equipment up here, but us, the people of God, are consecrated and set apart. Right? Uh, and if you're a part of the follow, uh, follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a part of the church, right? Then you are uh, a part of a dedicated, consecrated, set apart priestly people. There's no mediator that you need to go between you and God besides Jesus. He's already mediated that relationship. He's already negotiated that price, and the price was his blood. The guy standing here on Sunday mornings is not your mediator, right? He's just a teacher. Right? The mediator is Jesus. He's done the work of salvation. He's done the work to make you be able to stand before the throne of grace with confidence. Right? And so that's, we're, that's why we're set apart and sacred and consecrated, because the Holy Spirit is living within us, followers of Jesus. Right? And that's where we are today. And so all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus or not, understand that there's a dedication that comes uh, with being consecrated, with being set apart. Right? And, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot of decisions that go on in church services. In the Western church, uh, post Billy Graham and really even before him, there's this concept of an invitation, an altar call, right? Where there'll be some powerful preaching and the gospel will, will be shared. And then they'll call people to come and put their faith in him to start belief. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. The gospel indicates an invitation. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. But sometimes we get it wrong. And sometimes people will continually go down an aisle or whatever, even if there's no aisle to walk down, they continually have this cycle of, you know what, I just need to rededicate my life. I need to rededicate my life. I've seen it before. I remember in youth group when I was a kid, the same kids would go forward at camp every year or at Hot Hearts or whatever, all right? And I think it comes down to this idea of a rededication versus surrender, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to you at the end of this that what will keep you from having to continually rededicate over and over again is complete surrender for once and for all. all right, but we're going to look at Romans 6 and see that path to get here. All right, uh, Paul makes some arguments here. So if you would, turn your Bible to Romans 6. If you're interested in theology, man, this is your book. New Testament theology, this is the uh, Mount Everest of the Bible, they say in the New Testament, uh, and they say, or excuse me, the Himalaya Mountains of the New Testament, and that Romans chapter 8 is the Mount Everest. We're not going to be there today, but we're going to be in Romans 6, and I love this. We're going to find the first imperatives of this book, right? An imperative is a you must statement. It's a statement that applies to every person that's reading it or listening and without any exception. In this case, it's written to Christians in Rome, and so everyone reading it is to understand this is a must for you. This is a non-negotiable. It's like when parents, when you say to your kids, you must brush your teeth, right? That's not an option. We don't, we don't give them an option. If you feel like it, if you pray about it and God calls you to, you should brush your teeth. No, that's not how this works, right? You're called to brush your teeth, right? We're going to see two imperatives here. One in uh, chapter 11, and, or verse 11, excuse me, Romans 6, 11, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. And then we're going to see in verse 13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, right? And we'll talk about that. But let's read together 
Romans 6, verse 1. I'm going to read and we'll fill in some blanks as we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6 and 7, this is the main thrust. This is the main question. The way Paul writes is he'll pose a question. It's like a, um, a, a conflict that's going on in the people that are reading this. And then he'll give us an answer as to why the gospel answers that question. And so the question here was, well, if we're forgiven of our sins, why don't we just go and live however we want to? Why don't we just continue in the old way of life? That's the question at hand here. If I'm forgiven anyway, right, why don't I just live however I want to live and just ask for forgiveness later, right? He's going to kind of answer that question here in, in these two chapters. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse two, by no means, exclamation point. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Someone who's dead can't also be alive aside from Jesus, right? Uh, and even then he was dead for three days and came back to life, right? So if we are died to our sin, that's the, that's the essence of the gospel. That song that we sang right before I came up here, uh, hallelujah, I, I, you know, I was a uh, prisoner, now I'm set free. That's, the, that's what happens at salvation. I was a prisoner to sin, and the gospel message I heard that Jesus died on my behalf, that his blood has bought and purchased my debt before God so I can have forgiveness, I can know him, I can be born again. If I died to the sin, how can I go ahead and live in and around? It's a, it's a, rhetorative sta a uh, rhetorical statement, you can't. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse three, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. Do you not know? So if we're on the path of Christian dedication, the first blank there is no. Verse three, do you not know? Now here he uses it in a negative sense. And then later in verse 6 and verse 9, he's going to use it in a more positive sense. But he's asking here, do you not know? And that, that word there in the Greek is ag agnoio, which we get our word agnostic from. It means ignorant of, I didn't know this. He actually knows that they know this. But he's asking, did you not know? Did you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's one of the reasons we put people under the water when we baptize them, right? Um, you might have seen someone sprinkle or dunk water on. One of the reasons for me uh, is why we put people under the water is just because of that. Because it signifies that they have died to their sin and to their self. They've been buried and they've been raised up, right? There's, a, there's an imagery there of being crucified with Christ and raised to walk in new life, right? That's the words that are usually said there. And the reason is because it's significant. The word baptized means to plunge underwater. That's literally what it means. Jesus, when he was baptized, the Bible says, when he came up out of the water, the spirit uh, uh, descended upon him like a dove. And so there's some powerful imagery there. Man, if you're on the fence about being baptized or you want to be baptized, part of that is you're preaching a loud message of your death to sin and your resurrection and new life. All right, let's read on. Verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The call to follow Jesus is not just the call to resurrection, but it's first a call to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the call to, to Jesus is a call to die to yourself. It's a call to come and die. And it really is. You can't follow Jesus and be the way you want to be. That's not how it works. And if you've believed another message that, hey, I can follow Jesus without any, it won't cost me anything, that's not a really a biblical message. At every point when Jesus calls someone to follow him, it costs them something. It's usually a great cost. He called Peter, James, and John, it cost them their career. They were out fishing. It wasn't just a hobby. It wasn't like me and you, where we'd go up to the lake or go up to Sabine, Sabine Pass or whatever, and we want to catch a few fish. These dudes fish for a living. He said, come and follow me. And it says they dropped their nets and followed him. It cost them something. It cost Jesus his life for you to be able to follow him. So why shouldn't it cost you something? Right? So if you share in his death, then you can share in his resurrection. That's, the good, that's, that's hard. It's a hard teaching. I know that. But that's the truth. Verse 5, for if we were united, united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, here's that word again. We know, this time in a positive sense, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the purpose of the cross. You were a slave to sin, and through Jesus you can be a slave to righteousness. That's not a fair trade, I hate to tell you. Jesus is giving us his righteousness in return for our filth. That's not fair. If we, if we, if we were to analyze that trade, are anybody, any baseball fans in here? All right, I'm a huge baseball fan, Astros fan. I know they cheated. I'm, I'm all about forgiveness and grace. Okay, don't hate me. Um, but the trade deadline is coming up. And so players, there's a certain point where teams can trade players. And it's always a big deal because like the teams that are really good, they want to get the next pitcher or whatever thing to make to, to get their team over the top. So like the Astros traded for Justin Verlander back in 17 and they won the World Series. So it, you got a really good pitcher. So anyway, the deadline's coming up, but people always analyze the trades and are, are oh, who got the better of the deal, right? Well, when it comes to the gospel, uh, Jesus has set the, the standard for the, this exchange, Right? And he by far got the worst end of the deal. We are trading him our unrighteousness, and he is giving us his righteousness. It's not fair, but it's, it's, what's, it's what grace is all about. Grace comes through that. All right? We know, right, so many at, at, at youth ministry or children's ministry, for the first time they hear the message about Jesus, and that is always where the seed is planted. Me and you, anybody in the world that has put their faith in Christ, it began with hearing, it began with thinking, right? I know this to be true. Uh, I had a young man Wednesday night at camp uh, pull me aside in our cabin. We're just kind of hanging out. Uh, Wednesday night was a crazy day. Uh, I, I've never seen God move in one day like that. And this guy pulls me aside and says, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Nate, um, how old were you when you put your faith in Jesus. So I told him my testimony, and uh, he said, you know, I know that God is real, and I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. And then he kind of pointed at the Bible, and he said, 
but I don't understand the rest of this. And I said, dude, you're 99% there, man. You know the truth. It only takes a little bit of faith on your part. And I said, then the rest of the days, God will teach you this, right? And that, that, that eighth grade guy received Christ that, at that table where we, eat, where we usually eat dinner that night. Uh, and uh, you were here last week, you saw him on our video, but it's that, it began with knowing. That kid first showed up at our church in January for Hot Hearts. We'd had to do Hot Hearts online on a screen this year. And he heard the message right there and then sat on it for months and then God saved him at camp, right? But he first knew, right? That's where it always begins. That's why the Great Commission exists because at some point you have to tell somebody about what you know to be true. Making disciples begins there. And you don't have to be a preacher to do that. You can say, you know what? I'm saved and I'm set free and here's why, right? I love the... the, the um, the Chosen, if you haven't watched it, it's a, a web series about the life of Jesus. Just amazing. It's, okay, movies about Jesus, I'm going to probably hurt somebody's feelings here, in the past have been terrible uh, and cheesy and corny. I'm like, this isn't really how Jesus was. I don't know exactly how he was, but from what I read in the Bible. Anyway, this one is awesome. Like, it's, it's the most realistic and impactful and powerful thing I've ever watched. Anyway, the, there's the story of Mary Magdalene, her testimony they're like, hey, you know, she was possessed by seven demons and all that, and Jesus healed her. And, and they like pressing her, hey, what, what happened to you? She's like, I don't know. I used to be one way, and now I'm this way. And the only thing that happened in between was I met this man. And she didn't even know his name at the time in the show, but it was Jesus, right? That's a testimony. Man, I used to be this. I've heard the message, I believe, and now here, here's where I am. It's amazing. So to know, that's for us to say uh, this message about Jesus is true. It begins here. Let's read on, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, here's the next word, we believe that we will also live with him. If we've heard this message and it's true, the next logical step is belief, right? Louis Giglio has said that this, this idea of knowledge and belief is a separation of 16 inches from your head to your heart, right? There's a lot of people who can tell you the stories of the Bible, right? But it's that 16-inch gap from head to heart that makes the difference, from knowledge to belief, right? We believe that we must, if all this is true, if Jesus died, if we put our faith in him, if we uh, are dead to sin and new in Christ, then we believe that we must live with him. Paul says it another way in Ephesians 4, that you are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ Jesus. That if you have believed and you've understood, then the way you live ultimately matters. That's his, right? His first question was, well, should we just keep sinning so grace could abound more? No. You need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. This is where the rubber meets the road in our life. You know, knowledge stays here, right? Uh, when, I, when I believe, it moves to my heart, which ultimately moves out into my life. I know this is to be true, but when I believed it, I began to live it. You see how that works? A belief, it goes on, it moves it into uh, that psychomotor domain. If you're into educational theory, it moves it into, this is the part of the life where I'm actually living. Right? Not just knowing, I'm doing. All right? Romans 10, 9 and 10. This is a verse I told to, the, to Luke, the kid, uh, in our lunchroom. I said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... That's head. 
you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, right? To know and to believe. That's, it's like saying to know is this message about Jesus is true. To believe is the message about Jesus is for me. And that's, that's a fundamental shift that you have to make. We've been talking about that with, with our daughter. She, she's accepted Christ, and we're talking to her about baptizing, getting baptized, and we're discipling her. And her language has shifted from, I know, like, Jesus died for people's sins to Jesus died for my sins, right? And that's the shift that we want to see, right? All right, let's read on. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin, once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, here's that first imperative. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. If Jesus died to himself, being God, and he went to the cross and he's now living for God, therefore you must do the same thing. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider, that's, the, that's a verb there, that's an imperative. You must consider, but that's not how we would say it in Southeast Texas, I don't think. We would say, do you reckon you ought to live this way, right? That's kind of how a Southeast, you reckon we all go to Luby's for lunch today? Um, by the way, is Luby's still open? Because if so, I'm serious about lunch. Um, <clears throat> Luby's is awesome. Let's just take a sidebar here. How often do you get to go to a cafeteria and they just slap amazing food on your plate? Anyway, uh, this is my third service. I'm getting hungry. Um, but that's our term here is to reckon, is to consider. This for me is what uh, a, a pivotal moment in my life, 18 years old. I, uh, I became a Christian as a child. I was eight, year, eight years old when I first believed and put my faith in Christ. But I had this crisis dedication moment, that's what Augustine called it, a crisis dedication moment. And guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have had this moment or you will have probably this several times where you, something comes up in your life and you, it's a crisis that leads to dedication. Uh, Augustine had this, he, he coined the phrase, he was, an, he was a writer and a, and a speaker, and, and he had this moment where he heard the gospel and believed it, and then he was like, this is a crisis, basically an identity crisis. Augustine said, well, who am I really and what am I doing? And then he used the, the skills and the talents he had and became one of the most important Christian writers of the early church, right? It's that crisis dedication moment. Who am I, right? It's a, uh, it's a identity, uh, the imperative of identity. I consider myself and my life circumstances and my life stage and what God is speaking to my life. I consider it, the word there uh, is logizomai, is where we get the word logic, I think about it, right? And for me, it was uh, when I went to college, I kind of turned away from my faith and just lived how I wanted to live. My parents weren't waking me up on Sunday morning and taking me to church. We weren't praying together as a family anymore. Like I was out on my own, doing my own thing. And I decided, you know, I can do what I want. Uh, and fell into doing what I, what I want for a while. And uh, God gave me what I wanted. If I'm honest, he let me, he let me sit in my own stink for a while. Uh, and man, I just felt empty on, on the inside. I felt just broken uh, in, in my life. And I was like, man, I know God's real. I know Jesus is my savior, but when I live my life, I look at it, it is not the same thing as what I'm believing. What I believe and what I, the way I'm living are two different things altogether. This was a reckoning for me. This was the uh, imperative of identity. This was a crisis dedication moment. 
And I remember it vividly, and it, it, you know, uh, uh, there was a lot of events that happened. But I remember at one point in my dorm room by myself praying, just saying, Jesus, whatever you want, you can have it. Whatever you want with my life, it's yours. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it. Uh, it was, I didn't really know the story of Ruth probably at the time, but it was that, you know, hey, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you, wherever you put your tent up, I'll put my tent up there. And so did I know one day that I'd be a pastor? No idea, no way. But I just knew in the little things of my life at that point in time, I knew that I wanted to say yes to Jesus, whatever he wanted. And it started with very small things and it's led to some other big crisis dedication moments where I've had to do things like sell houses and quit jobs and uh, pack up everything I have and move away from family, right? I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm just saying those are moments where the rubber hit the road and when a little bit more dedication came my way, I had to make the choice. A lot of times this happens like for, for people that are raised in church, it happens when they kind of hit adolescence. Because when you are saved as a child, you understand salvation as a child, right? Um, you understand, well, I, I know I do bad things, and I know Jesus offers a remedy for that, and so I want to put my faith in him, right? Usually that bad thing is maybe disobeying your parents or cheating on your homework or punching your brother or whatever, stuff like that, okay? Maybe it's worse, uh, but for me, that's kind of where it was. But then you kind of uh, enter to adolescence, and your brain starts developing, so now you can understand not only concrete things, but abstract things like, uh, wow, that person says they're a Christian, but they are doing something different, right? When you're a child, you don't notice that kind of stuff. And when you're a child, someone says, hey, Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and stayed in there for three days. You're like, cool. I believe that. That's a cool story. When you're 15, you, someone says, hey, Jonah uh, was swallowed by a great fish and was in their belly for three days. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa how big is this fish? Wouldn't the stomach enzymes of this fish dissolve uh, Jonah's skin over three days? Wouldn't he, you know, you start asking some really tough questions because you can now think abstractly and you start to understand things differently. Jesus died on the cross for my sins as an eight-year-old means one thing, as a 15 and a 35-year-old means something completely different. Man. It means that for all the times I lied to make myself look good, Jesus died for that. For all the times I stole from somebody, Jesus died for that. For all the sexual sins and all the uh, racism and all the sexual abuse and all of the uh, hate in the world, Jesus died for all that too. You start to understand the, the gravity and the weight of the gospel in a whole new way. Right? And so a lot of times that... That moment, you know, the, the teenagers, I've had this conversation probably more than any other conversation with teens, is like, uh, well, I, I feel different now than when I was accepted Christ as a child. And I have to tell them, look, man, Jesus said it is finished. And it was finished for you at eight years old. And it's finished for you as 15. Now, do you understand it more now? Yes. Have you had greater temptations now? Yes. Do you need to probably increase your uh, surrender and dedication to him now? Yes, but I'm here to tell you, if you're in that boat and you think your testimony is worthless because you didn't come out of you know, drugs and alcohol or whatever, it's not the case. The grace of God is sufficient for you as it is for a death row inmate. And a lot of times it's just a matter of, hey, this is another spiritual moment where God is doing something big in my life. Dr. Moody said it before, this idea of once saved, always saved, if truly saved. 
And if you have confessed Jesus as your Lord and you believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and that he has saved you, man, he has. He keeps his word. All the promises of the Bible find their yes in Jesus. All right, I believe that. And if you have never believed and only you really know that, then guess what? You aren't really saved. <laughs> it's kind of simple. You know, you don't need to walk the aisle every six months to get it redone again. When Jesus, his, his work is sufficient and efficient for once and for all. Now, there's still times where, of repentance, and there's still times of greater calling. I mean, we had several students a- after camp who told me they feel called to ministry. Man, their surrender is going to have to be a greater surrender than other people. That's just the way it is. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe your crisis of dedication is Melissa has asked you to work in a wanna club, and you're terrified of kids. I get it. <laughs> maybe I asked you to go to youth camp, and you almost passed out. I get it. Right? But that's that crisis dedication moment. Somebody might have called you to, to, to serve in a different way. It might be uh, you're afraid to have a conversation with somebody that you were supposed to have. Whatever it is, that crisis dedication moment is a time to yield and a time to surrender. And maybe instead of saying a consistent rededication, right, maybe instead if we had a box, a decision card, we, we need a box on there that says, you know what, I'm going to yield more of my life. We don't like to yield, do we? The yellow light is the most disrespected light of all stoplights, of all traffic lights. The yellow light means yield. That means slow down because red light's coming. I don't know anybody that follows that, to be honest with you. It means, okay, I'm, I'm pretty close now. Let's go a little bit further, right? We don't like to yield. Uh, we just don't. It's not in our nature. But to following, follow Jesus is a life of yielding and a life of surrender. And for so many of our students at camp, it was a greater surrender than they've ever given before. Not that they've been resaved; It's that they, didn't, they were holding parts of their life back from themselves. And instead, you know what? I'm going to surrender it all. Here's what Shane Pruitt says. He's an evangelist. Uh, he's spoken here two, two years ago, I believe. He spoke here. And uh, he spoke at Falls Creek this last week, the week after we uh, were there. He says this. He said, spiritually, we can't recommit what's never been committed. And we can't rededicate what's never been dedicated. Instead of rededicating your life over and over again, try truly surrendering to him as Savior and every day continuing surrender to him as Lord. There's a first-time surrender that has to happen at the moment of salvation when you say, you know what, I have nothing to offer you, Jesus. The empty hand of my soul is all I have to give. No, none of my works, none of my intelligence, none of my outward piety can earn this. I just need you. That's the first surrender, and that's what's called justification. That means that before God, you're now justified. Because of the blood of Christ, the sins in your life are forgiven, and God sees you just as if you haven't sinned. That's how I remember it. Right? And that has to happen. At that, that's a momentary thing. That's a one-time thing. Justification is a one-time event. But after that comes another big word called sanctification, which simply means being made to be more Christ-like, to be formed in his image and his likeness. And that's a lifetime process. When I was 18 and I gave Jesus my yes and said, hey, I want it all, I didn't know what all that meant, right? I wasn't a real disciplined person about reading the Bible and studying. But I know this, I liked reading the Bible, and so I was trying to figure it out. 
right? I, I knew this, that I wanted to pray, so I started there. I knew that, hey, God loves the church. The church is his bride, so I got involved in it. Did I know all the details? No. That's come, that's come through sanctification, right? But that's how it began. It began with surrender, and it's continuing with surrender the rest of the way. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. This is that final imperative. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I'm not an expert on Greek, so I, I don't pretend to be, but this imperative is in, in what's called the aorist tense. And what that means is because of something that's happened in the past, this is guaranteed to happen in the present. I'll give you an example. Because you've done all the coursework for your high school, you've done four years, you've got all the credits completed, all that, right? That's in the past. Because of that, you are guaranteed to graduate, get the diploma, right? You understand how that works. You've done the work, here's the paycheck now at the end of two weeks, right? That's this uh, imperative here. It's because of all that you've known and all that you believed and the reckoning that's gone on in your heart and your soul and your mind, right? Because of all that, present yourselves to God as a tool for righteousness. This, this term, peristomy, present yourself, it's a military term. It's like a soldier presenting themselves to their commanding officer ready to obey orders. Uh, one of my friends, Sam Dickerson, just graduated is at uh, West Point Academy, uh, Military Academy, and Sherry, his mom, posted a picture of him uh, when he first reported for duty. It's a great picture. I should have put it on the screen, but um, he was in his normal clothes, like whatever he wore from home. He was standing at attention, presenting himself to, to serve, to serve the country for X amount of years or whatever. That's the picture here. As I'm presenting myself before the Lord, hey, you have my yes. Help me to be a tool for righteousness. Help me to serve. Help me to do that. And it takes surrender to do that. Because of what has happened in the past, I consider myself a tool for righteousness and not for anything else. I don't need a rededication. I've surrendered it all. Right? Tomorrow I'm going to surrender it all. The next day I'm going to surrender it all. It's a lifetime of surrender. Right? It's like saying, my life is yours, Jesus. This is what I prayed. Every part of it, you have my yes. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, at youth camp, a bunch of students had moments with God, got saved. Uh, we also, uh, and other spiritual decisions, and one thing we do at camp is we take their phones up on the bus. Uh, people are getting nervous now. Um, Yes, parents, you can send your kids without their phone for a week. It's okay. Yes, kids, you can survive. Uh, so we let them have their phone on the bus. When we get to Oklahoma, uh, we take their phones up. And uh, part of that is we just want to pull them out of all those distractions and, and, and all that. Most youth camps do this. Uh, and then we gave them back to them the night before uh, we went home so they could charge it and they could have, you know, whatever on the bus. The crazy thing was a large number of them never turned their phone back on until we got really close to home crazy. We didn't tell them to do that. The other thing I heard was people were saying, oh yeah, well, I deleted Snapchat and I deleted Instagram 
and I was deleting, they were just deleting apps off their phone on the bus because they knew that it wasn't okay in their life anymore. And let me tell you something, if a teenager will surrender things on their phone, I can't think of anything else that, that their people are more dedicated to. You see a teenager, they have a phone on them. If they're willing to yield even their private digital life to the Lord, wow, that's surrender. You can surrender your job. You can surrender your marriage. You can surrender your life, right? That's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. Here's a couple of quotes. One young man told me in a text message after camp that he has never felt better in his entire life since giving his life to Jesus. He's not unhealthy. He doesn't have a bad life. But he says, now I feel better than I've ever felt before. One young lady told me since she got back from camp, I've read one chapter of the Bible each day, and here are the verses that I've memorized. And she typed them out on a text message to me. Nobody told him to do that. Girl who's here now in this service, she didn't know I was going to say this, but she said, my mom and grandparents fell into tears of joy when I told them that I gave my life to Christ, and I'm trying to convince them to come to church with me. And she did. That's surrender. Not only do I get the benefits of salvation and knowing Christ, but the rest of my life I'm giving to him as well. My family, my friends, everything. Let me read a quote from Louis Giglio. He's written a new book called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table, and he addresses this very topic. He says this, the solution is surrender. Surrender comes when we raise our hands and say, God, obviously I can't do anything to change this situation, but Jesus, you can. I'm not going to hide from you anymore. I'm, not going, to, I'm going to open my heart to you, to your love and to your solutions and to the investigative and restorative work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to follow you in your leadership, Jesus. You have finished the work on the cross and you have ultimately won this war. There might be battles left for me to fight, but you've established a beachhead of victory for me on the shore. That's the truth. This life is not going to be easy, but the greatest enemies that you have and the greatest challenges that you have, sin, death, hell, the grave, they've already been dominated by Jesus Christ. The victory is won. There is a beachhead, I love that terminology, that's D-Day terminology, a beachhead of victory. When the people stormed Normandy Beach, their goal was to get on the beach and establish a beachhead so the other, things, other uh, boats could land there. Jesus has a beachhead of victory already established in your life. But will you surrender? Will you join him in it? That's the question. I mean, that's for me, that's for you, anybody in between. Are you willing to give Jesus your yes? I'm going to ask you to do something a little different today as we close out. Uh, I've been told that uh, the sign of surrender, uh, you know, if somebody came in here with a gun and you wanted to surrender, you put your hands up. Okay, I surrender, right? Wave the white, we don't have any white flags, so we're going to do something a little bit different today. You have your life, and you have your family, and your job, and your career, and your school, and your teams, all these things that, are, that you have in your life. And it's been said that we're to hold those with a loose grip, and we offer those to God in a loose and open hand, all right? Not gripping tight with white knuckles, God, you can't have this, this is mine, but with an open hand saying, hey, my future, it's yours. My career, it's yours. My marriage, it's yours. My parenting, it's yours. My teammates, 
right? How I am as a student, whatever, it's yours, right? So I'm going to say a closing prayer. And if you would, you don't have to do this. I'm not going to make anybody. But uh, if you would just join me in, in just having some open hands, uh, just to saying to God, hey, I, whatever I have, Lord, is yours. If you don't want to, don't do it. It's okay, all right? Uh, this is a conscious decision. Right? Ruth had a conscious decision to say, hey, I either surrender everything and follow or I don't, all right? Let's pray. If you're willing, just open your hands up to God. God, I'll come to you with open hands. Lord, you have given many things in my life, many talents, many abilities, many uh, opportunities, a wonderful family, comfortable living. Lord, things that I don't necessarily deserve, God. Lord, all of it I'm willing to lay at your feet. God, I'm willing to give my yes to you. Lord, I pray that many in this room would do the same thing. For some, that might mean a simple thing as joining a home group. For others, it might be more complex. It might mean an end of a relationship or an end of a career. It might mean, I don't know, I can't, I can't program uh, life the way you can, God. But I know that giving our yes to you is valuable. And God, I pray that we will completely surrender our heart, soul, mind, and strength to you. Lord, and that the next day and the next day and the next day, that'll be our call. That'll be our prayer. God, I want to surrender. Maybe it's to lead a D group. Maybe it's to join a D group. Maybe it's to volunteer in kids' ministry. Maybe it's to be a greeter. Maybe it's I'm going to start praying. I don't know. I don't know what that means for you. But God's speaking. Right? Through his Holy Spirit, he's going to lead you where he wants you to go. You just have to give him your yes. God, I pray for anyone here today who might uh, not be a person of faith that has never surrendered to you for the first time. They've never put their trust in you as their savior, that they are unjustified before you, God. I pray today that you would lead them to you, God, that they would want to give their heart, soul, mind, and strength to you, Lord. And I pray they would have the boldness to talk to someone after this service about that. Our pastors will be out in the foyer, God. There's uh, maybe someone that invited them here, that they would have the courage and the boldness to walk up and have that conversation, Lord. And God, I pray that we will not hold back. We will love you recklessly, God, that we will love you uh, with abandon in our heart. The world has nothing to offer us that you can't uh, offer us a thousand times more, God. In Jesus' name, amen. We say it every week. This isn't the game. This is the rehearsal. All right, this isn't, this isn't the performance. This is gathering together to huddle together to go out and to live the game outside of here. Let's go and be the church.